1: Hi, I'm Stephen. And I'm Helen. And on this week's New Statesman podcast...
0: We ask, would a no-deal Brexit really be so bad?
1: Would any of the other Conservatives' candidates have done better than Theresa May?
0: And what's happening in the country that isn't Brexit? And is it all going horribly, horribly wrong? So Stephen, do we have to talk about Brexit?
1: We do, and we will forever.
0: Yeah, well, no. No, we don't. Not according to Liam Fox, who's got a plan. It's called Project After... And it's his basically his plan for the transition deal and what happens after it. So Chris Cook wrote a good article about this on the BBC, which had some stuff in it that made me do that emoji, like, ah, oh, face... Like, for example, the fact that during the transition deal, let me get this right, so say South Korea could sell into us as part of the EU trade deal, but we would have to have our own bespoke deal with South Korea ready on the day after, you know, on whatever it is now, April 1st, 2019, to sell to them. And also the thing I hadn't got into, which lots of people who know about trade had really been talking about for ages, they kept talking about RU, and I didn't want to really admit that I didn't really know what RU was, and it's rules of origin. So it's the idea that if you're a part of the EU trade deal, then you have 55% of whatever it is you're making has to be made in the eu so if you're a car manufacturer your bit that you build in britain no longer counts towards that so it's quite a strong incentive to move your car factory to continental europe
1: well so because the weird thing is is in terms of and this is why a lot of time people talk about tariffs on trade it's not a particularly useful thing to say because obviously the demand for a car is fairly inelastic and you can get away with on a new car adding the kind of upfront tariff just yeah five percent tariff or whatever you add that onto your price for a car and actually that mostly is not that much of a problem But mostly what happens with car manufacturing, particularly in the European Union and indeed in the States, is that bits of it will cross from one EU border to another. So the crucial thing is the second you have a tariff barrier at one point, your part leaving the Nissan factory in in Sunderland Sunderland. and heading to the Nissan factory in Poland doesn't then get a tariff when it passes back over that border to end up in the finished car again. I think it's a really good piece and I I strongly... uh, urge everyone to read it but i think the liam fox's plan for this kind of weird transition deal where bits fall away gradually i don't think that will actually happen it's an idea that Theresa may has to hold out because she has to sell to her own ultras the idea that the transition will end will end but actually the reason why you need to have a transition period is there's not time left to arrange a bespoke Arrangement between the EU and the UK. I mean, as so often with Theresa May, her tragedy is that she is her her most lucid and eloquent whenever she gets on to the thing that she really still believes, which is not it's a bad idea and we shouldn't do it. So she laid out very well in her Florence speech and to the Commons this week why the two options people are talking about, are the Canada-style deal, which is the deepest trade deal yet conducted with a third country, doesn't work because the standard of market access is so low compared to what we have now mm. Then it certainly causes a recession in the United Kingdom and possibly with, you know, a, high, with a high degree of, of probability does in at least part of the eu27 as well on the eea level obviously regular listeners know my feelings about why the eea does not meet the referendum outcome has a sufficiently large surrender of sovereignty particularly on borders and regulation and it doesn't resolve the issue for anyone and you potentially then are back here with another acrimonious exit in four years' time. So the EEA model doesn't work. Now, obviously, at this point, you might throw your hands up and go, why don't we just not do this?
0: But that's because you're a sensible person, but unfortunately also that you hate democracy.
1: Also, I hate democracy. The thing I found a bit maddening, and I should, I will blog about this later on and you'll all be able to read it on our shiny, super-sore-away website. I don't think this can work, right?
0: Wait a minute, what, Brexit?
1: Brexit can work, right? Right. There was no onus on no, me down. on onus on me after the Conservatives won in twenty fifteen, when I also didn't think you could successfully carry off that level of cuts without some form of extreme political reaction. There was no onus on me to go, oh well I have to find twelve billion pounds of welfare cuts. No, no, no. Vote Leave, or the Brexiters, whatever you want to call them, have successfully won this referendum. It's not my job to pretend that I think that that can work out well. I think, you know, in a democracy, the winning side does get to have a try at, at doing its thing, but this idea that it's somehow there's an onus on moderate Remainers, or whatever that weird term means, to kind of go like, oh, here are some things to, that would make this work. Yeah, I know what you mean. You know, it, really, when my, people crazy. ask
0: my opinion on this, I say, I think probably not doing it is the best idea. Um, and, and like, yeah, okay, so if you have have to do it, that's fair enough, but equally well I, again, neither you and I would stand for Parliament full stop, hopefully, but certainly not on a, neither would we stand to be party leader on a ticket of, and here's how we're, we're going to make a success of Brexit, right? Yeah. Peter Wilby wrote an interesting thing in the magazine in which he expressed a, an interesting view about the idea that basically there'll be a lot of sound and fury and Derm and Strang and all those other kind of things, and then essentially like they'll kind of cook up something very close to the end and everybody will walk away and I've been trying to test my own bias against that, like about my own belief that this looks like a sort of screaming runaway mine train into hell. And I kind of can't, I just can't see, I can see them cooking up some sort of deal and presenting it as a deal, but I just, I'm astonished how many moving parts there are that are so complicated that we didn't get clarity on before Article 50 was triggered. And now essentially the transition deal seems to be like, please buy me more time On exactly the same terms, when you could have bought yourself more time by not triggering Article 50.
1: You can sort of see the outlines of... And I think actually Theresa May has a point about a third way being the only sort of acceptable... There's a big question of whether or not a third way is achievable, right? Because a third way, which would be a bespoke trade deal... The difficulty is, is whenever you you sort of get into the detail of Brexit... Half of the Conservative Party goes, oh, no, we don't like that. I mean, so the weird eruption about the fact that during a transition deal, the European Court of Justice will still run in the United Kingdom. You know, well, obviously, because the whole point of a transition is that if you had time to create a bespoke transition, you wouldn't need a transition period in the first place.
0: Yeah, I do think there are some things that are looking a bit more clear. Like I just now feel that the end solution to Ireland is customs checks at ports. And actually, essentially, kind of quasi-reunification of Ireland by other means, right? I just, I don't see any other way to deal with that. Unless you just say that there's freedom of movement between the Republic and Northern Ireland, and no customs checks between them either, and you're just going to be like, who who knows what's happening there? I don't, I I just don't see any other way to do it.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's the thing, it's like, if you don't want a land border, and there are... Many very strong reasons not not to to have a a land border. Not least the fact that economically, it just does make no sense for either half to not have a border. Well, just
0: people whose families—half of them live on one side and half of them live on the other. Like, and I think you read that great Twitter thread by um, at Shockproof Beats, which was about the fact that all of those former like border posts have now been turned into like karate gyms and stuff like that, right? They would have to spend a lot of money. This is a fascinating thing. There was a story in The Sun about Brexiteers lobbying Philip Hammond to put aside some of his headroom money uh, in order to kind of buy up all the stuff you'd have to yeah. do to prepare for no deal, right? So massive customs warehouses at Dover, that kind of thing, hiring huge amounts Compulsory of border... Compulsory
1: purchases on the Irish border, which, I mean, what I what could go wrong? Can't. Um
0: Also, yeah, do you know what people in Dover notoriously aren't? Angry. They are. People in Dover are quite angry. I've met some of them.
1: Well, I think the thing I find... You know, kind of. I'm not sure if I find it heartening or, or kind of oddly. It's the way Charlie elphick literally the MP for the place where there is going to be queues round the block, has become like the person going, "Yeah, we can leave without a deal. Why not?" And he's just like, "I mean, this shows an admirable lack of self-preservation, I guess." Yeah, but-
0: exactly. If he's got anguished lorry drivers block and people can't literally can't drive to work, then I don't think he's going to be MP for. For there, um, very much longer.
1: But yeah, the 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 thing is, is actually like the potential for a deal where basically the UK pays slightly over the odds for the things it wants to keep, so research, science, blah blah blah, for effectively a Norway-style deal, but with immigrants instead
0: of fish. Instead of fish. I'd sing along if you know this one at yeah. home.
1: Is perfectly doable in terms of everyone's economic interests. However. It's always going in the political interests of the Labour Party for various different reasons, right? So if you are a Labour backbencher with a large Leave vote, it's in your interest to vote against a government deal that you see as inadequate to show your bona fides. If you are the leadership, it's in your interest to defeat the government wherever possible. And there will be, it is clear, sizable Tory rebellions who feel that whatever deal we get is not Brexity enough. Now, probably the numbers of Labour votes who vote to prevent a WTO exit is bigger to than the number of Tory votes who go, actually, you know, WTO is nothing to be afraid of. The important caveat is some people remember the troubled assets relief programme, AKA TARP.
0: A.K.A. Ash for Cash.
1: No. TARP, no, TARP it was Oh, the the, U-
0: the US the, one. The
1: US one. Oh, I remember but, when they
0: bought a load of bad debt for the banks yeah. just after well, Bush, end of Bush, beginning of Obama, right? yeah
1: which the first time in September did not pass, because although two-thirds of Democrats voted for it, most Republicans voted against it, and there were enough Democrats who went, well, I'm not voting for George Bush's bailout program, sozzles. You know, you dug this hole, you get out of it. That it didn't pass, and that almost certainly did make the... Yeah, we almost certainly are still living off from with the consequences of the original program being voted down. It feels less likely to me... But I, you, it's very easy to see a situation in which there aren't enough Labour MPs who, for whom it is politically tenable in their own seats.
0: Yeah, if you're an MP with um, a Leave constituency, why immolate yourself on the altar of saving the government's terrible, you know, only yeah. quite crap Brexit deal rather than a truly crap Brexit deal? So I think, no you know,
1: there is the possibility of, and I also, I mean, the slight... The slight fear in terms of the the question of what happens with the Irish border, right? So the most significant speech that was given last week at Conservative Party conference was Jane Prokenshire standing up and going, no physical infrastructure, a.k.a. no checkpoints, no membership of the customs union or single market, no border in the Irish Sea. Those three things can't <laughs> be reconciled with one another. right? Mm. And at some point, there is going to be some kind of reckoning about that.
0: When he talks about those digital customs checks, I think it's a bit like when George Osborne used to talk about how he was going to clamp down on tax avoidance, which was always a handy way of going like, essentially, you had to put a magic number into your spreadsheet to make it all add up, right? And And that was the one that you did.
1: The scary thing in terms of the prospects of a deal being made is the way that the British government has started to use the word creative as a synonym for, oh, this feels a bit politically fraught maybe if we flannel something will come up and something won't come up on the irish border as you say the workable economic solution and then there's a question of whether or not that is checks at ports is that politically deliverable at the uk end it's not entirely clear and i I think think the
0: the, dup had quite strong feelings about it
1: yeah i know this is why it does all come down to what happens not just in terms of what Jeremy Corbyn decides the official policy is, you know, is the policy to vote for the deal? I, I don't know what in, you know, February 2019, or whenever the deal comes before Parliament, what the politically fraught points for Labour are, right? Mm. Are they in a situation where you have a bunch of MPs in Remain areas going, I can't vote for this, sorry, my constituents will eat me. In some ways, the election result does make that less politically painful, because, you know, I think the least safe London MP has a majority of something like 8,000, mm. you know, kind of like...
0: Even your West Streetings are now yeah. up from 1,000 to 7,000 or Yeah, so.
1: <laughs> so, you know, so in some ways, the kind of one half of their coalition is quite safe. But what if it's a deal which MPs in leave areas can't vote for? And then again, it's always in... The opposition leaderships' interests to vote against it's in the Lib Dems' interests in terms of where their constituencies are defending to vote against, and it's in the SNP's interests, not least because I don't think that the deal will meet any of the SNP or the devolved uh, Labour administration in Wales's asks for what they want either. If, so the parliamentary yeah, it's it quite fraught. Very they quickly. set out
0: in advance what actually what their red lines are in terms of the opposition party about what they will and won't accept but i agree with you ultimately the political calculation is why dip your hands in blood where if you think it's a bad thinks it's a not disastrous but bad deal that politically that is a very tough thing to vote for well i guess we'll return to this in subsequent weeks for the rest of our lives
1: So let's talk about
0: things that aren't Brexit. Things that aren't Brexit. Well, the the first thing I wanted to flag up is there's been some really interesting movement. Um, The FT had a story last week about the fact that the Office of Budget Responsibility, which is now independent, basically is predicting that two thirds of the headroom that Philip Hammond built into his, his budget sums, basically to kind of as a cushion for Brexit, is going to be wiped out. Not by anything to do with Brexit yet, but by the fact that actually persistently we've underperformed our productivity growth that you'd expect. And it is one of the kind of enduring puzzles of the British economy is why has our productivity been so crap for so long? And we're now, I've got a funny feeling we're behind Italy, even.
1: Yeah, our productivity is the lowest in the G7.
0: Yeah, so basically they've just managed to absolutely wipe out a load of extra money you have to play with. He's got to find money for various public sector pay rises. You know, he's got to try and give out some little nibbles here and there on on stuff that will kind of make it seem not just like a punishment budget, I would suggest.
1: I mean, there were were many... Interesting subplots and delusions on display at Tory oh, Party his, conference. And
0: his conference speech was all about what a beastly nineteen seventies rotter Jeremy right. Corbyn was, right?
1: But this underlying thing of the British economy is working, we've had a decade of no wage rises. Yes, that's a problem which predates the Conservative government. We've had seven years. So seven years, years of in you can't, really, yeah. you can't really you can't really go we left the
0: the mess the, we inherited from Labour. Yeah,
1: we've had the worst productivity growth basically since the spinning Jenny was invented. <laughs> I'm not joking. It's yeah, it's the worst since the industrial, you know, and a third bad thing has happened in the economy. Oh, and all of the growth is financed by debt, right? you know, by private households taking on more debt. That meets no definition of an economy which works. You can have another more interesting you... argument about whether or not Labour's solutions would hmm. fix those problems, right? But I mean, not least because the whole thing of going, you know, capitalism is great because it invented the internet. Which
0: makes me really annoyed because actually that was US defence money. But
1: I mean, also parking for a fact at the moment, it's not true. I have the internet. I want a house, right? You know, like, I mean, that's (laughs) the...
0: You get no gratitude. You know,
1: politics is transactional, but it does all add to the fact that the budget picture is quite difficult. I mean, if I were them, I would actually make this quite a painful budget politically because my assumption isn't you don't have to go to the country for ages although the things i would do if i were advising them that would be painful would be this is the budget where you turn around to a bunch of people and go oh you see that nice bit of green space near you in Seven Oaks shame if anything happened to it shame if it? anyone yes.
0: wanted to build a large mansion block on it yeah, yeah. no I, yeah, I think that's not an unreasonable point point. and you never know quite how seriously to take this kind of complaint but I've talked to people in the hospitality industry this week they're really worried about the introduction of the national living wage mm. at the same time as they expect that you know their workforce will be shrunken by both by people voluntarily leaving maybe even in a couple of years time by visa requirements and also so just if you're doing like long-term planning for stuff about food and drink, and actually whether or not there will be you know will there be beef tariffs? Who can say? It's a delightful game of chance. So I think there is actually the fascinating thing to me is that where the relationship between business and the Tories is right because actually. It, I don't think it's that happy at the moment. And the FT certainly has lots of reports about them taking John McDonnell and Labour a lot more seriously, both because they now really see the real chance that Labour will end up as the next government, and also because they don't feel that the Tories are listening to them and acting in their best interest. I mean, that, you know, that might go down very well with quite a lot of our listeners, I guess, but it is a fascinating thing that the what well, another thing that the Tories used to take for granted, they've no longer got absolutely locked down.
1: Well, the slightly funny thing is that throughout Ed Miliband's leadership, whenever he would do a business reception, he'd go, look, I do think then you are a bit on the take. I do think then you need some fairly radical reform. I am going to make you all pay more income tax, but I'm not the one threatening threatening our membership of the single market, am I? And they'll go, oh, lol, as if Brexit would happen. And now there's this slight amusingness that you have a Labour leadership that is in every other respect to Ed Miliband's left. Which actually isn't even that open-minded on the single market, but <laughs> yeah. but you do have a large chunk of business going. But we probably could live with a lot of these things. Someone did say to me entirely straight-faced, "Well, he's not going to nationalise all of us, is he?" And also, right then, there will be a lot more infrastructure spend, a lot of which will be done through
0: We've got, what, private procurement. Right billion pounds, yeah. in McDonald's plan that would be available um, to pump into stuff. And
1: so you you have that. You have the kind of sense that even though. Jeremy and John are in a more Eurosceptic place, naturally. They don't have religion on it in the way that a large chunk of the Tory party does. And yeah, there is this kind of weird thing about going, oh, well, maybe maybe this wouldn't be so bad.
0: I think that we're heading for a really tricky winter for the Conservatives, even if they were actually a united, happy party. And the fact that they're not is... You know, I think it's going to be really kind of grim and stuttering for them Why? because Brexit sucks all the oxygen out of the room at the same time. I mean, I, there's just been... The Howard League have just been in and done a lot of prison inspections and they've been tweeting some of the photos and, you know... Cells which are built for one person essentially have for a long time been used to house two people, and that's a pretty grim thing already. But you would not really the size of you know these and the state of repair of stuff, and lots of that's down to PFI contracts actually that have phenomenally tough break clauses, but you know and are underperforming. But I just think there's a, a sort of scumminess to quite a lot of the public realm now, right? It just feels slightly degraded, and I think that probably just things like you know bin collections and grass cutting in parks and potholes and stuff like that is going to just slightly beyond the uptick over the next couple of years
1: yeah i think that's very true and of course the other thing which you talked about in your column last week but i'm think i mean maybe i'm just forgetting and all of our listeners are going no 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 you talked about this at length last week but i think we didn't discuss universal credit
0: oh my god the horror yeah well i think it's universal credit is a is a fascinating example of a really good idea that has been systematically kind of ruined by bad IT. I know, I know, we have talked about it previously, but I'm always happy to weigh in with the fact that even more people have come out against it. There's now, so we hear, a sizable Tory backlash against it, simply because, you know, I just think the fact that you end up with lots of people in rent arrears at Christmas, and people who don't really understand that an upfront payment has got to last them the whole month, people who are living slightly chaotic lives, people who might have debts, you know, people might have a payday loan that they need to pay out, you know, that the way that well, the whole way that it's structured is to me structured by somebody who hasn't been been on benefits if you've
1: you've had to live in your overdraft for a long time right and your housing benefit goes in to pay your rent and 20 quid of it vanishes in overdraft charges yeah well then you don't have enough to pay your rent and you're further back in your overdraft and etc etc um and there's this six week lag and the, the reason why the DWP thinks that it is worth pursuing still further is because the people who have been on it have gone into work faster than people who aren't. But that is because... They when gave it
0: to single people, claiming they gave it with to them- single
1: men without dependents first. Yeah. Now, so there are... A variety of
0: surprisingly now, if you're a single mum to two kids and yeah. you only get offered sixteen hours a week, and they're in you know it's a half an hour drive away or an hour bus ride away, then it's probably, however much you want to work, that is just a tougher thing than if you're a single man in his twenties or thirties. Yeah,
1: and so there are so the thing then basically, if you are, a, I was talking to one of the dissidents, and if you are a Tory dissident, basically you get. Weirdly, this is what they used to do when you'd write mean things about Universal Credit. You know, they'd take you to their weird testing centres and go, "This isn't a Potemkin village at all. Look, real people are receiving this benefit." And you're like, "That person looks a lot like an actor." <laughs> yeah, and they weren't really an actor, but you. well, you, you could be a the... Universal
0: Credit truther. That's yeah. in. <laughs> yeah. um
1: But you know, like they would kind of go, "Like it's fully operational," and then it would. You
0: find they... out it's actually only serving. Um, 47 people, the simplest possible needs.
1: They, basically, they are saying to these people, oh, well, you yeah, look, I know there'll be some worries about cuts, but look how many people get onto the job ladder, and in the end, people will be will be grateful. I think that the assumption that under universal credit, single mothers will interact with the labour market in the way that young men leaving university or being made redundant do is... Bold. E heroic, um, <laughs>
0: that's what it is. One of the things I would recommend reading on this is Jess Phillips, Labour MP for Birmingham Yardley, wrote a piece about her brother's experience of claiming universal credit. I think which is called the you know something about the path to hell being paved with good intentions. It's on the Huffington Post. You should be able to find it. We'll put it in the show notes. So yes, if you want to read about another government landmine in the road ahead, then do so at the Huffington Post. <music> And now for a segment we like to call...
1: You Ask Us.
0: Yes, getting into the enthusiasm of it. Joe Beckwith has written in to say, this may be a stupid question, but what is the podcast motto, Stephen?
1: There are no stupid questions.
0: Only stupid answers. Are there any Tory MPs who were on the ballot for the last leadership election who you think would have done better with the current set of circumstances? So it's time, basically, for your five-minute peer into Stephen Crow, I think.
1: The thing I found fascinating is, so obviously because we're coming near the end of the year, and so I'm doing my kind of post-mortem of you know thing, well, I things I called comically wrong and I try and look back at not just at the, the year but things I wrote before that have been proved wrong by events this year and one of the things I kind of noticed is how much hope conservative modernizers had put in Stephen Crabb and actually you can see why you know his his biography very ticks a to lot talk to. of boxes he's very warm etc etc he's seems like a normal human because he's in the right place on things like international development he he you know sends that that signal the Tories totally. really need to send to affluent social liberals and affluent ethnic minorities that he's on their side. Now for various reasons
0: He sexted people, didn't se- he?
1: Yeah, for, he's I mean, kind it, of in the shop. Back yeah their their crab is back at the shop now. And they don't really have someone Else To fill that role Well
0: I guess that's why They're so desperately Looking at Ruth Davidson Right Because she gives them All the same feels um, Yeah
1: Yeah I mean, so I think I think Stephen Crabb, yeah, in terms of the kind of post-mortem from the Bez data, from the things John Curtis done, I got to speak at EPOP, which is the Study of Polls and Elections, and John Curtis was on before me, so it's, wow. it's slightly weird. To he be was a warm-up act. Well, it's always slightly weird to have that thing where you're like, I am the warm-up band, but I'm terrifyingly on after the main event. Yeah. And it's very clear from all of the data that there were a couple of, of big forces at work that pushed people away from the Conservatives. The first was the condition of the public realm. Another leader, I think, can't really do anything about that. But the other one was that, again, I know I'm a broken record on this, is socially liberal people and affluent ethnic minorities who voted for David Cameron did not vote for Theresa May. And they basically traded a bunch of quite useful votes in terms of 1st past the post among social liberals and affluent ethnic minorities for fairly useless votes.
0: And Remainers as well. Yeah, and
1: remain. yeah. I mean, I
0: know there's a big overlap between that. Well, I think also it's kind of instructed to go through the leadership candidates. Yeah. Prime Minister Lim Fox, I'm fairly confident in saying I don't think that would have solved all of our problems. Prime Minister Michael Gove would have had certainly a banter advantage. I mean, but I can't, again, I I don't think it's necessarily what the Tory party needed. I don't know, so... I mean, at least I feel like he's... you know, he's so saying exactly the right ins- adjective to describe this. He's certainly I mean, he certainly is a clever guy. Like, he but just is. He- my
1: instinct when he was running was that his unpopularity was so toxic that he would be the one who would make Labour's election a fair fight. But that was because I also used to think that you couldn't turn around a negative first impression now yes corbyn is still unpopular relative to you know the days when politicians used to have net positive figures yeah. beyond single digit. but in terms of the kind of secular decline of trust in politicians in general he is the least unpopular which and as with boris and cameron before them when people liked them johnson it's relative right
0: You Boris. Sorry,
1: I... I, Wash your mouth. We actually, I think, should have a jar. (laughs) Actually, (laughs) let's have a jar. I will put a pound in the jar, and people can suggest a charity, and then at the end of the year, so far, a whole one pound (laughs) will go in the Boris jar. Okay. Right. So I, I, I would have said before, oh, well, he wouldn't have been able to turn around his toxic unpopularity
0: but who knows Now, but, you know, maybe, maybe he would have been on the one show talking um, about like his love of hamilton which i know that he likes and that would have won over yeah young yeah, social m- liberals. M- maybe
1: yeah I, and i think the, the advantage that anyone who had actually voted for it would have is that they wouldn't have needed to do some of the performative stuff that turned off a bunch of social liberals right citizens of the world so some of some of, of the stuff she did which people hated she felt she had to do for her flank. Some of the stuff she did, which people hated, she did because she sincerely believes it. Also, crucially, in terms of getting a positive Brexit deal, right, she's really the only senior Tory who cares about immigration. A lot of the rest of them were perfectly willing to blow that whistle in order to get their preferred outcome in the referendum. But I think, you know, one of the reasons why Boris imploded was he appeared... Two pans in the jar. Oh, God. (laughs) Why, Why Boris Johnson imploded... Was that he?
0: He didn't seem he, he didn't seem hard enough. into, yeah. and
1: he kind of seemed to be going, oh, maybe, maybe we'll go into the EEA.
0: You've forgotten, of course, the dark horse in all of this, Andrea Leadsom. Imagine only how great a figure we would make on. She definitely would have held uh, Donald Trump's hand. I feel like Andrea Leadsom would have would have embraced Donald Trump. Should have clasped him
1: to her. Oh, we also we forgot. Oh, didn't Nikki Morgan actually didn't ever really stand? It was just like a.
0: She thought about it, and um, well, I think we've done Boris Johnson by your kind of cruel side blow to him. And I guess David doesn't count because he was on a joint ticket with Stephen Crabb. Yeah. So really, only the glory of Andrea Ledson remains unaddressed. I you find it at this point.
1: worrying that I find Leadsom harder to imagine, seeing as she technically got closer than anyone else, which I. Fear reveals deep-seated sort of misogyny because I was going to go, oh, it's because she's a crank, but I've just discussed the the prospects of several people who I believe to be cranks as well. So I just do find it so hard to imagine Andrea Leadsom becoming prime minister. She
0: wasn't ready. I think that's the one thing you say is that basically after the Boris Johnson-Michael Gove implosion, there was a kind of who's the most Brexity candidate available, right? And, and she, I
1: mean, she. the thing is, though, she wasn't ready in the same sense that I'm not ready to, like, form an army and, you know, take back half of Western Europe by the sword. I don't think that, I time is, <laughs> no, time no, is don't one of so the hard issues that I have got yeah. Yeah, ahead but of But you people. know
0: what I mean? The, the big problem with that Times interview was not necessarily the exact comments about Theresa May but the fact that it deeply spooked the rest of the party into thinking well, she's not ready for prime time. So um, in summation no what we might do maybe next week is talk about who i mean we talked about the mini pop stories last week but we could we could always if you would like maybe tweet us if you're interested in this talk a bit more about the rising stars in the conservative party and indeed the rising stars in labor because i think there are a few over conference season that i feel a lot more impressed by You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Helen Lewis, and my co-host, Stephen Bush. Recorded by India Book and produced by Caroline Crampton. Why not subscribe to Stephen Bush's morning email, Morning Call, joining thousands of others in reading his early morning thoughts. I think that's how we'll describe them. You can sign up just simply by Google Stephen Bush Morning Call. Our theme music is Devil With The Devil by the underscore orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons.